Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to another episode of the TC Live Podcast, streaming on the Tennis Podcast Network and available on all your favorite platforms. I'm Mitch Michaels, and settle in for some more high-quality, exclusive tennis content. Well, we're fresh off the completion of the third and final Grand Slam of the year at Roland Garros, and once again, big props and congratulations to both Poland's Iga Swiatek on her maiden Grand Slam title and Rafael Nadal for winning his record-tying 20th major and 13th French Open crown. It still seems surreal just saying that out loud. But while Grand Slam season ends, there's still plenty of tennis to be played in 2020, as events took place this week across Europe. On Thursday, though, TC Live was joined by Kamal Murray, coach of Sloan Stevens and a guest contributor for the next week on Tennis Channel. He spent his first segment on the show discussing what he's been up to, Sloan's up-and-down 2020 season, and much more with Chanda Rubin, Nico Pereira, and Noah Eagle. Here's Kamal Murray on the TC Live podcast. Let's look back to the 2017 U.S. Open, the champion, we are all familiar, Sloan Stevens hooking up with the coach, Kamal Murray. One of my favorite moments after any Grand Slam is when the coach and the player gets together, not to mention starting the XS Tennis and Education Foundation nonprofit organization in Chicago, helping to grow the game and field the next generation of stars, not to mention a great mean mug as well at the camera. We've got Kamal Murray here. So excited to have him as part of our Tennis Channel team for the next 10 days. No Eagle and Chandra Rubin as well. Uh, Kamal, thanks so much for joining us here on TC. We appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad to be here. How was it? First day? First <laughs> yeah. match? It was a pretty good one, you right? You know what I think? Whenever you're out of your element, you have to respect the art form. So I'm, I know this is <laughs> this is an art form I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, so a lot of respect. A lot. Of, I'm, I'm being coached right now. I will I'm say, by the way, Janda, he looks good. He came in. He came in very fashionable. I do appreciate it. Oh, very I had clean. help. Don't worry. Okay, I, good. I, I okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, it's 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 been it's been interesting, and, and we saw those pictures uh, come out of Sloan and, and winning the U.S. Open, and you know some of the results she's had since then. I'm curious when you look at what it took to get to that point. You know, what were some of the most important things for you that you were able to convey to her, and and to get to that moment where she's holding up the trophy? You know, I think when you're when you're doing it for the first time, it's easier to get lost in the process because you don't know what's on the other side of the bridge after you cross it. But I think it gets harder the second and third time because you know, you understand now what it means to win a Grand Slam. So for the first time, you're just really you know, laser focused in, you get into a routine, you eat the same thing every day for 14 days straight. You have practice you know, at the same time every day. You get really superstitious. So you kind of lock in on superstitions. And then the second and third time, you try not to mess it up, right? And then I think it becomes harder because you understand what's at stake. You understand the history uh, versus just being locked into the, the superstitions and the routines. Well, I'm curious because we look at this year and there have been so many things that had to be different, you know, that players have had to adjust to, obviously being off the tour for months at a time, but still trying to, as you say, kind of lock into what has worked and into your routines. How did you manage that, and, and how has 2020 been for the two of you? Yeah, I mean, quite honestly, I think we could have did a much better job of managing it. I think that 
um, sometimes being so involved in the process and in the decisions on, on all the calls and listening to every email, it can sort of take you out of just focus on being ready. Hmm. You know, we knew that it would start at some point, but I think, you know, both of us were too much in the know and guessing on, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Is, it, is the tournament going to happen? I think that, you know, if we had to do it all over again, we would probably lock back into our process and kind of quiet some of the noise and just say, hey, they're going to figure it out and we're going to be ready to play. Um, so, you know, I think one of the great things about tennis and coaching and players is that if you, you look at the year behind you, you be honest with yourself on some things you could have done better uh, so that we can move forward in a better position uh, for 2021. Well, look, Coco Goff burst onto the scene last year, Wimbledon 2019 in particular. We just talked a little bit about Coco and her disappointing result today. But how have you seen her game develop really in the last 15 months and certainly with the shutdown this year? How do you think that's been difficult for a 16-year-old? Well, I think it shows how quickly tennis changes. I mean, I, I joke with Sloan, uh, when she won the U.S. Open, Coco was playing juniors. And when she got to the finals of the French Open in 2018, Coco was winning the junior French Open. And now she is a staple on the tour, getting in all the main draws. And so it really is amazing on how, you know, quickly she ascended to the top. But it's not surprising. You see a lot of young players sort of making the jump and, you know, really challenging the, 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 the older players and the more mature players to reinvent themselves and to continue to improve. So it's been exciting to watch. I mean, I know her, I know her, her and her father personally. Uh, and we hang out at the bar at night and go to dinner. So um, it's been exciting to just be a fly on the wall and sort of watch them go through this for the first time. Because, uh, you know, I was there in 2016, 2017. And, um, you know, I think it's great for the game. And I think this year, you know, Last year was an adjustment for her, but I think in 2020 was in another immediate adjustment because last year you had Coco Mania. You had the crowd. You had, you had 19,000 people and Coco playing against the opponent. And now she sort of had to play by herself and get used to quietness and, you know, calm. And I think that's sort of a, a new you know, environment for her and all the players. Um, but her in particular, because she did get so much fanfare at Wimbledon U.S. Open. She was walking out there used to being like her plus her army. <laughs> right. playing her opponent. Now it's just kind of her, right? And so I think it was, again, just a two years of constant change for her. So, you know, I empathize with her being 16, being thrown into this. Well, speaking of you and Corey, and we'll get to those bar stories in like Tennis Channel After Dark, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I know that we keep saying it's Kamau's debut on Tennis Channel. That's not entirely correct. Let's go back to Melbourne of this year, January of this year. A little barbershop action. This was awesome. Yeah, it was fun. It, it, it's fun to get the guys together. I mean, a lot of these tournaments, you spend, you know, six, seven, eight weeks consistently uh, on the road and um, you know it's, you, you got to start to develop a sense of family and a you know camaraderie amongst the players to sort of break up the monotony and so this was just you know something we did that was pretty fun uh, to get the guys together. Now I'm curious Kamal you know was were there any people who were mad because they weren't included in this? I mean this <laughs> looks like a pretty good group right here. T tons of people I think <laughs> version two will be much different and might be a lot bigger. You know, we planned on it being a lot bigger, but now with social distancing, we can. But yeah, I think it, uh, it was a good thing. A lot of people felt left out. So don't worry, we're coming for you. More from Kamal Murray in a little bit on the TC Live podcast. But as you just heard, one of the players he discussed was the rising sensation that is Coco Golf. In 2019, Coco burst onto the scene in a major way and continued that success in 2020 with another impressive major run in Australia where she beat former champion Naomi Osaka. But it's been an uneven year for her in general, with big wins, frustrating losses, and a lot of competitive matches that came down to the very end. On TC Live, the crew broke down Coco Goff's 2020 season 
and what a strong finish to the year could mean for the budding star. Coco Goff gets through to the main draw in Ostrava after what was a really high performance in the first round at Roland Garros and then a letdown in the second round against the qualifier Martina Trevisan, No Eagle, Chanda Rubin, and Nico Pereira back with you here on TC Live. So this has been an interesting 2020 for Coco Goff so far after what was a breakthrough 2019, now 16 years old. Chanda, what would you say, how would you say you'd rate Coco's 2020 year thus far? I think it's been tough for everybody. Obviously, with the break and the hiatus, I thought it was always going to be tougher on the younger players because they are still working on getting going, haven't quite gotten a full head of steam, haven't played a full year of professional tennis as well. And Coco Golf's in that boat, started the year well in Australia. And, you know, there was a lot of signs. She, if we remember, she was just getting to where she could play closer to a full schedule. Mm. You know, that was the talk of going into Indian Wells and what she'd be able to play after that. Um, after her birthday and just a full stop. So I think it's been tough. Um, I think there's still work that she needs to do on her game. We saw the double faults coming into play. And when that starts to happen, it affects your confidence. And you start to question, okay, is it me? And, And at one point, we heard golf in a match say, you do this every time. That's not a good sign when you hear a young player saying that. And, and this is that match against Mukarutha. And she was right there, as we see so often. She's such a good competitor. She is mentally tough. But when you start getting the yips, when, you're, when the fundamentals of your serve are difficult for you to tie in under pressure, I think that's where Coco Golf is. And she just needs to do some fundamental work on that shot so that it can hold up when she gets into those tight spaces and matches. And I think the key word there is pressure. She's facing certain situations that she's never faced in her life. The amount of public scrutiny, the amount of pressure from the other players that know that you're facing this kind of uh, scrutiny for the first time in your life. And she has faltered on it, unfortunately. So it'll be good to see how she handles that outside because the serve is the one shot in tennis that you have total control over it. So if you if you get some issues, some, some confidence issues, that's the first one that's going to take hold. And we saw it with Alexander Zverev, for example, in the, in the last year and a half. So it'll be interesting to see how the opponents put some pressure on her serve going into uh, the court for, for that second one. And, and certainly it would be interesting to watch tomorrow. That's a really good point on Sasha Zverev, somebody who's overcome that second serve woe well, and not necessarily fixed it, but the other aspects of his game have been so good that he's been able to continue to win. The numbers for Coco in her last four matches, double fault-wise, 13, 15, 12, 19. So... It has certainly become an issue, and against Martina Trevisan, that was the match where she said it happens every time, and and she was right there at at your point as well at 7-5 in the third to potentially get to the third round at Roland Garros. I know that the crowd is something that Coco really likes to play off of. She mentioned that after her win in the the second round of qualifiers in Ostrava, just how it's different in creating her own energy. How have you seen that play out? Well, everybody does playing off the crowd, especially if they're going for you, as she Mm. usually does. She had some big play at the U.S. Open in, in England as well. She was backed out by the crowd, and it's not the same when you're playing in front of an empty court. And we have examples like in Melbourne when she played Naomi Osaka in 2020, the people were just going crazy for her there. They clapped also for Naomi, but it was Coco's night, and she really enjoyed it. She thrived on the public present, on her family present, and it was totally the opposite in Roland Garros with what we just saw a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think it's something that 
you have to get used to. Again, she was just getting kind of used to having this huge following, you know, having the pressure in these big matches and getting through it. It was so impressive uh, as we saw it match in and match out how often she was able to get herself out of trouble and just dig in and, and have that innate belief. So when you don't have the crowd, when you don't have that extra energy and you're having to pull all from within, and you're also struggling in one or two critical areas, one being the serve, uh, it can be tough and you don't have that energy to kind of latch on to. So I think like everything for Coco Golf at this stage, it's a learning experience. You know, this is something she can grow from. It informs your decisions as a player in terms of what you need to work on. And, and you know, hopefully with her team, uh, with her parents there behind her, she can go back and continue to work on that in, in those areas. But certainly when you look at just the mental toughness, she has it. I mean, mm, that hasn't yes. gone anywhere. So that's something you can't teach, and that's something she can build on. You always love to see that out of somebody who's just 16 years old. Shanna mentioned it during the break. Just two years ago, she was winning the juniors at Roland Garros, and now, two years later, we're expecting her to win at the main draw. I feel like that certainly has to play a factor, that the talent level that she's playing on a consistent basis now, and in this first matchup in the main draw at Ostrava, she's got Katarina Sinyakova. What do you see in that matchup? You know, I think that's another match that is very winnable, um, but she's going to have to, to get down and kind of do the work. Uh, but if she can be aggressive, use the court, just, you know, use, you know, sort of the this, this last part of the year where a little bit of the pressure is off. You know, these are, are tournaments where players are trying to get matches and trying to take advantage of opportunities. The majors are done. Um, I think she can use it for that in that way, you know, this will be a big opportunity for her because it's a very winnable match and hopefully she's continued to work on those parts of her game as well. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Despite coming up short against Sabalenka and Ostrava this week, Big things are still expected from Coco at the end of 2020, going into 2021 as well. And she still remains just 16 years old, hard to believe considering all the big moments she's already had. Well, there's no shortage of young talent in the men's game as well. And this week on TC Live, we shine the spotlight on one of the up-and-coming superstars in tennis. Andre Rublev celebrated his 23rd birthday on Tuesday, and the world number eight has had plenty to celebrate in 2020. With two titles and two Grand Slam quarterfinals since the tour returned this year, the sky is the limit for the young Russian. On TC Live, Leif Shirish, Nico Pereira, and Noah Eagle discussed what made Rublev so successful, the state of Russian men's tennis, and how Rublev stacks up with the field in the race for the final spots to get to the ATP Finals in London. Happy 23rd birthday to Andre Rublev, who is having a renaissance season at just now 23 years old. Four titles this year alone and into the top 10. Andre Rublev is certainly representing well. Nico, this is somebody who a year ago was starting to make that rise in the ranks, but has exploded in 2020. And given the uncertainty of the year, he has taken full advantage of the opportunities in front of him. What do you remember about being 23 years old on tour trying to make a name for 
yourself. I know you remember better than I do, but that, that was a while ago. But, but about Rublev, this is a guy I've been following. Because I know Fernando Vicente, his longtime coach for a long time, and he's always been a powerful player. He ran into some injuries, as you mentioned, in, in his back mainly. But this is a guy that you looked at his ranking inside the top 20 without a great result in a Grand Slam. Well, he got it in Roland Garros. Of course, you look at the titles. You had St. Petersburg. You have the Hamburg title right before Paris. And no wonder he pulled out of this week. He needs some rest, and he's in for bigger and better things. Expect a lot from this guy. He's a bruiser. He can punch it from the back of the court. He improved his second serve which was his Achilles heel, and when he feels more comfortable ending up the points closer to the net, watch out. He's a mainstay in the top ten in my book. Well, Leif, this is a young player who's part of a Russian core on the men's <clears throat> side of three players in particular that really stand out. Medvedev, you've got Rublev, and of course Hatchinov. All three of them kind of somewhat differing styles, but Rublev has kind of separated himself from the pack this year alone with his results. Yeah, I mean, last year it was Daniel Medvedev who played so brilliantly at the U.S. Open. This year it's been Rublev. It's been an amazing coming together of all the qualities you need as a player. Physical, mental, and suddenly having great success in the winner's circle. And you can see from October 2019, it was Rublev on the outside of the top 20. Now he's inside the top 10. Hatchinov is the one who's been struggling this year and just hasn't really sort of found his identity as a player. What does he want to do on the tennis court? I think Medvedev and Rublev are a little more comfortable with the talents they possess and the things they want to do. But this is the new Russian Troiki after Safin. And Davidenko and Eugene, they always seem to have guys together who, you know, compete against each other. They sort of create that competitive friction that allows them to grow together, and that's what they've got. It's a beautiful thing. Well, on Hachanov, he came in and, and overpowered a lot of people, and then people in the locker room started talking about how they could get into his forehand. I think that got to him a bit, lost a bit of confidence. Medvedev, such a quirky player, just strange to get through him. He's got all the tools, really good mover, but maybe a bit of a mental let down when he had so much success but Rublev this is a guy that really can do it forehand backhand his first serve is huge he's well coached so I like the way he has come into this path so I think he'll have an easier time maintaining that top position certainly hits it big and that has put himself in great position for the ATP finals in just a few weeks as only a few more events left, and Rublev right there in the final spots currently. Leaf, this is a tight race for those final two spots. We've seen the, the six that have already claimed. Of course, Roger Federer won't be there. But Rublev and Schwartzman right there right now, still a lot can happen. Yeah, Rublev's up 250 in terms of points on Schwartzman, 400 on Berrettini approximately. So Schwartzman and Berrettini have a lot to go for in the next couple of weeks, including Vienna and the Masters Series event in Paris. You know, how will that shake down? Rublev is it's not going to be handed this. He's going to have to earn it because guys like Schwartzman, Berrettini, these guys know how to play, and they'll play well indoors, particularly the Masters Series event where the most points are on the line. Come on, you got two, two bruisers, Rubler and Berrettini. You got to hand it to my man, Diego Schwartzman. He's a miracle <laughs> man. What a player. What a story. I'm really pushing hard for him to get into those last eight. The TC Live podcast continues with a look at this year's runner-up in the men's French Open final, Novak Djokovic. The world number one was soundly beaten by Rafael Nadal in the clay this year, but still sits in pole position to make history. If he holds on to the top spot until March of next year, which seems very likely, then he'll pass Roger Federer's mark of 310 weeks ranked number one. On the TC Live podcast, Chandler Rubin, Nico Pereira, and Noah Eagle analyze how Noah has planned his schedule for the remainder of 2020, how he accumulated sustained success this year, and the likelihood of a sixth ATP Finals title in November. 
even with that lopsided loss to Rafael Nadal in Paris. Novak Djokovic has a very, very good chance of comfortably passing Roger Federer on this list. The most weeks at ATP number one. If everything goes according to plan as it will, he will pass him March 8th of this coming year. Nadal does have a remote chance of getting back to that number one spot, but it's very unlikely as Novak Djokovic has established such a cushion in the rankings. And if he continues to coast and just eat up the weeks as he is, he will eventually overtake Roger Federer for another record. No Eagle Chandler Rubin, Nico Pereira back with you here on Tennis Channel. This is honestly a pretty incredible accomplishment when you really put things into perspective. Novak approaches Federer's record. He has now said that he wants to adjust his schedule to maximize his opportunity to continue to eat up points. Here's what he had to say earlier about how he's kind of navigating through everything. He's definitely out of Paris. He said, I won't be playing because I can't win any new points. That's why I'm going to Vienna and that's why I'm going to London. And that is through Sasha Osmo, who is right there on the scoop consistently. So, Nico, uh, this is all part of the big three, so to, so, to, so to speak, conversations, the greatest of all time, which we could get into and we could probably go on for hours and hours at a time. But what does this mean for Novak Djokovic to overtake a record of this magnitude? Well, you have to consider that we're going through the pandemic ranking as well, that, that the results from last year are going to be counting all going through next year, and that is an ongoing conversation. I think it's well-deserved. These guys won, won it all and won it in, in great manner, and, and I think he's gaining fans as we speak. Novak Djokovic, of course, came after Rafa Nadal and, uh, and uh, Roger Federer, but if you talk to the youngsters in the schools nowadays, they're talking about Novak Djokovic because he's been the one lifting the most trophies of late, and that is something that is going to pay off as much as he would like it to be now. He has to understand that he came after Rafa and Roger, but this guy is awesome. Yeah, fair point. I mean, it's been an incredible year for Novak Djokovic when you think about it. Obviously, a lot of months where players weren't playing, but he had put himself in such good position. And, and because of um, the adjustments that have had to been made because of, of tournaments staying on, not wanting players to feel obligated to play during this uncertainty. As we look at, at this graphic of the ups and downs, started the year winning the Australian Open, ATP Cup, Dubai, uh, things kind of fell apart <laughs> around the Adria Tour and, and with COVID. And we know the story around the U.S. Open and, and Roland Garros as well, that tough loss in the final. But even with all that, he has put himself head and shoulders above everyone else. And it's for that reason that he has this tremendous opportunity. You could say maybe a little bit of an asterisk beside it because of the pandemic. But in terms of playing and in terms of being head and shoulders above week in and week out, it certainly has been Novak Djokovic. I just give more credit to the people that have done well through the pandemic. But mm. regarding that tweet, he says, I'm not playing Bercy because I already made the points. Well, you have to consider the fact that Novak Djokovic has played a lot of tennis after the pandemic because he's been winning a lot. So he has to watch out. He has to be careful. And he does well in my book to, to skip Paris, just play Vienna and the ATP finals. Now, we've talked about it a lot, how impressive this year has been for Novak Djokovic, given all of those outside circumstances, the Adria Tour and then the DQ at the U.S. Open, the ability to come back and dominate again in his next couple of tournaments and then making it all the way to the final where you run into the king of clay. There's only so much you can do. I know you mentioned it, Chanda, but I am curious a lot of people like to have these conversations of jockeying for a position between these three with the pandemic and the rankings and how everything's been affected the, the last two years, basically, where it's going to be 22 months counting totality. 
Do you think people will take that into the, into account when kind of jockeying the positions between the three? I think at the end of the day, no. I mean, it's about, you know, who was in that position, who played to put themselves in that in that space. And Djokovic certainly has done that. Um, you look at, I mean, he's had two losses this year. One, was that really a loss? It was, you know, default. Does that count or not? I mean, on paper it does, but in people's minds, not maybe so much. But that loss against Rafa, that was comprehensive. But still, with that being said, he has been the player to beat. He has been the guy who's had the, the target on his back all year. And, you know, everybody has the opportunity to take advantage of what's being allowed because of the pandemic. It's been tough. Players have had to adjust. And you can argue that Novak Djokovic overall has done the best job of adjusting, even with the couple of, of unfortunate incidents that have happened. Well, this is a, a guy who came between Federer and Nadal. This is a guy who is about to break the records, could end up breaking all of their records. So the tougher it gets, the tougher this guy is, and you can't take that away from the world's number one. We end the show this week with another dose of the newest TC Live contributor, Kamal Murray, offering up his thoughts on the upcoming 2021 Australian Open. What does he think about a training bubble for the 14-day quarantine period? What were some of the positives from the U.S. Open bubble that can be implemented down under? And how important will it be to have Roger and Serena in Australia? Listen as Kamal Murray answers the important questions on the TC Live podcast. Let's go through exactly what we're expecting. We saw some of those points. Here's what uh, Tennis Australia President Craig Tiley had to say on getting Australian government to kind of loosen some of the player quarantine restrictions. He said, we completely accept that everybody coming from overseas has got to have two weeks in quarantine, but what we are negotiating is a quarantine environment where the players can train and go between the hotel and the courts in those two weeks. So this kind of poses a good question for Kamau, especially as a coach. How much of a difference would a strict 14-day quarantine be versus a 14-day kind of player bubble where they can train? I think obviously for the quality of tennis for the tournament, a 14-day bubble where they can train would be better. But, you know, it's really a question of do you play or not play. I mean, whatever the conditions are, whatever the rules are going to be, they're going to be the same for everybody. And so I think it's really about what do you do from day 15 on, right? If everyone's got to do a 14-day quarantine, then that's just what it is, and we got to make the most of day 15 forward. So, you know, you can complain about it. You can try to make adjustments. But I think the key is Craig is being very transparent, uh, and they're making adjustments on the fly. So it's really – do you play under the conditions or do you not? And then once you decide to play, then you just go with what the conditions are. Now you're talking about a master negotiator in Craig Talley, and, <laughs> and we know it, but from a, point, from a coach's point of view, it's a dream come true for guys like you because you have the players in the bubble before you have them behaving during the Christmas holidays. So I think that's a big advantage, and we've seen all the bubbles. They result in better quality of play when it comes to it, I think. So you've seen, as you mentioned, you've seen the bubbles. You saw it at the U.S. Open. You've seen how they dealt with it in Paris. How do you feel that Craig Tiley is handling this situation so far? Because a lot is changing. Changing and we don't know exactly what the world's going to look like. We don't know what Australia's going to look like. So how have you felt he's done so far? Well, he's done great because he got lucky in 2020 with the fires in Australia. People mm. forget about that, and he dealt with it in, in a masterful manner. And I think now he has also the experience of the U.S. Open bubble plus the Paris bubble, and he will learn from those. He already has announced reduced crowds and and they are a top organization second to none i really love what they do there and i wish them the best but the truth is we don't know where this thing is going so we, there's still some weeks that uh, things can change exactly kamal i'm interested from your perspective because you're living in this and, and you
you and Sloan are going to have to kind of plan around this. And so they're telling the players and they're telling the teams to get there around mid-December. So how do you plan around that? How do you figure out, okay, this is what makes the most sense for us to make sure we're going in in our best form? You know, as a coach, it's been my dream to make a player practice. <laughs> <laughs> good point. That's I, a good I think, point. I think it's, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I think when you talk about getting the best training situation, to have a player in one place in a very controlled environment without a lot of distractions or photo shoots or uh, other obligations, travel for family, it, it, makes, it could make the, the quality of practice a lot better. Mm. And so, you know, we're going to go through offseason – um, you know, as we would any other year. And then we'll just maybe a two or three day interruption for travel. And then we'll pick it right back up. So we've got our schedule made. We've got two or three days planned for travel. And we're going to pick it right back up. And then we're going to practice on Christmas Day. There you go. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with it. The players love those Christmas days practicing. Good luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm wondering about is that all the players are going to be in just one place. And that's going to be really interesting. And it's going to change the dynamic of preparing for a Grand Slam, right? Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the challenges during the offseason is getting enough players in one location, a good, a good practice set. So this could be, you know, very interesting in terms of getting great practice matches ahead of the Australian Open. Well, the one good thing is, and you talk about getting players in one location, two big names have already committed. You got Roger Federer and you've got Serena Williams. So, Kamal, how important do you think that is? Because, look, we know that these players want to play in the slams. But to have two of the greatest of all time, certainly towards the end of their careers, but still competing and already saying we are going to be there, how important is that? I think it's good to set the tone and just say, hey, we're willing to suck it up. And so everybody else prepared to suck it up. Um, I think, you know, Serena, you know, made a, made a great, uh, set a great example with U.S. Open and French Open and showing up ready to play. Mm. And so I think it's, it's big for Craig to say, hey, whatever the conditions are, we're committed and everybody else should get ready as well. The Australian Open has become such a force because, because from being the least important slam now is so huge in that area of the world, in Asia as well. And Serena, we know how hard she's chasing number 24. Roger said he was going to play in 2021. We, he's been saying that he feels healthy, so it doesn't surprise me. But a great move from Craig Talley coming out and saying, hey, listen, these guys are playing. They're carrying the banner for the last 15, 20 years. Everybody should be here at this party. That's it for this week's episode of the TC Live podcast. Big thanks again to everybody in front of and behind the camera for making the show what it is, especially Kamal Murray. Great job making a strong debut this week. Reminder, you can catch every episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Just go to tennis.com slash podcast. You'll find us as well as the entire library of shows on that network. And catch us on all your podcast platforms as well. Leave a rating, a review, subscribe. Wouldn't hurt. We'll be back next week for another week of tennis shows, another week of TC Lives, as well as breaking down all the action as we're gearing up for the Paris Masters that are just a few short weeks away, and then we'll be too long to the ATP Finals in London. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>